I believe that's on page 988 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you didn't bring your own. And if you did bring your own, open it up to the end of 1 Thessalonians. As we are at the end of this book, we're addressing the last text in this sermon series that we started at the beginning of the year. About a hundred years ago, F. F. Scott Fitzgerald, there we go, he wrote a short story. It's named The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Are you familiar with that story? There was a movie made of the same name that sort of vaguely resembled the story. Back in 2008, it stars Brad Pitt. Benjamin Button's life is a curious case because Benjamin Button lived his life backwards. He lived his life backwards. He was born as an old man, and through the course of his life, he lived his life backwards until he died as a newborn baby. If you read the story or you watch the movie, it does what good art does. It helps you think about real life. It gives you a different perspective on your life by trying to imagine, what would it be like if I was born as an old man and I lived backwards and died as a baby? There's a lot to be learned, I think, about how to live life from imagining living it backwards because that's not an option we have, right? We only can live life forwards. We're not supposed to start life at our most grown-up, at the most mature point we will ever be, and then slowly grow backwards into more immaturity and more immaturity until we end in the least mature state we've ever been. That's not how life works. But it's interesting to imagine what healthy life should be by thinking about living it backwards, like F. Scott Fitzgerald lets us do in his story, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Because we know that a healthy life and a well-lived life and a godly life goes the other way. From immaturity to maturity. And that's another way of thinking about what 1 Thessalonians has been teaching us throughout this book this year. God has designed Christian life not to be lived backwards. He's designed Christian life to be lived forwards. He did not create us. He did not save us in Christ to just sit in the same spot and never grow or mature. Nor did he save us in Christ so that we can just continue to regress until the longer we live, the less mature in Christ we become. Scripture actually teaches us that the work of God in Christ is the work of sanctifying us. First Thess uses that word a couple of times. It's the, it's the work of maturing us in our character and our conduct to be more like him, like we read in the, in the Shorter Catechism, right? To weaken and destroy sin and to grow in holiness. So that who we are really in Christ, the way he sees us, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, as Ephesians 2 teaches, becomes more like everyday life the longer we live. And we use a couple phrases at Grace Covenant to describe that kind of life. You might remember them or recognize them. Sometimes we talk about steps to the right, by which we mean moving steadily, one step in life at a time, to become more like Jesus, to learn him and to love him and to live like him, one step at a time to the right. We can sometimes call that discipleship. The book of 1 Thessalonians uses the word sanctification, becoming more set apart, more like Jesus, more like God's created us to be in Christ all the time. Sometimes we say it's being disciples and making disciples. So I'm going to use the word discipleship. Discipleship, 
as we use the word here, and as First Thessalonians teaches us, I think it begins when you become a Christian, and then it continues the entire rest of your earthly life. And it happens, it, this text has taught us, this book has taught us, through imitation. It happens through imitating Jesus and imitating other people who follow Jesus. And discipleship, this book has taught us, requires honest, genuine relationships. Because it's done with other Christians. We do it together with each other for others. And then other people do it together for us. So it requires honesty and genuineness and transparency and relationship. And discipleship uses, this book has taught us, the word and prayer and sacraments, the ordinary means of grace to grow us. And discipleship is strengthened through godly habits, like we just finished reading in the earlier parts. Remember, 15 commands of godly habits Paul gave us earlier in this chapter, which kind of grouped into four things, the gospel habits of honor and imitation and thanksgiving and of the word. All of those things depend entirely on God's work in us through his spirit as we do the work living it out ourselves. That's the life of tender discipleship that First Thess has taught us. And now we're at the end of the book. I'm going to read the last verses of the book to you. Let's listen to them and then we're going to work our way slowly through them so that we can hear and heed this text, the very word of God. First Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use this text this morning to fix our eyes on your Son. I pray that the Holy Spirit would take this text and spotlight Jesus and his work, and that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame, and is now seated at your right hand interceding for us. I pray that this would give us endurance inspired by hope that we might have work produced by faith and labor prompted by love in keeping with this text we've been learning. I pray that you would use nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ to make us holy and blameless when he comes again. In Jesus' name, amen. So verses 23 and 24. I would call that the close of the body of the book, and then verses 25, 6, 7, and 8 is the conclusion to the book itself. So we're going to look at Paul's prayer in verses 23 and 24, most of our time this morning. This is Paul's, Paul's final prayer for the church. He wants to complete the instruction that they need to take the next step to the right, right? Chapter 4, verse 1 says that. Here's what you need now. Here are the next things that you need to do to keep growing in Christ. And remember, he's writing to people who already believe the gospel, at least mostly. That church would be, he would assume that it would be mostly composed of believing Jews and Gentiles. He and his mission team, remember Acts 17, came to Thessalonica sometime earlier. They proclaimed to them the gospel, that God's kingdom has come, that God's Messiah has finally arrived, and his name is Jesus. And he taught the Thessalonians with his mission team that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, he is God incarnate, and that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life the one that God requires us to live, and we cannot. And that Jesus Christ died a death on the cross that pays for our sin if we have faith in him. 
And that Jesus Christ satisfies God's wrath on us and instead gives us eternal life if we will but believe in his name. And that Jesus' resurrection then is the beginning of a new creation. And this new creation time overlaps the old creation we've read in verse Thess 4 and 5. And for, for a while, old creation and new creation exist at the same time. But eventually, the old will pass away and the new will be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. And so he's taught them, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is justified. Right, One time, as we talked about crossing over from the tribe of Adam to the tribe of Christ, from being in Adam and in death to in Christ and in life. That's justification. It happens one time when you're adopted as God's child and you can never be unadopted once you're in Jesus Christ. And that's when sanctification starts. After being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then we begin to grow and mature in the practice of our faith. We're destroying sinful habits. We're growing and developing godly ones. That's sanctification. It goes from the time you become a Christian for the rest of your earthly life. Because Christian life is not the curious case of Benjamin Button. Right? It is not steadily unwinding and becoming less mature all the time. Christian life is steadily growing in maturity and holiness and Jesus-likeness. And as you're on that road of sanctification, right? some of us have just started it, some of us have been on it a while, Sooner or later, almost everyone on that road asks this question, and I ask it more than once. So, so if God can declare me not guilty in Christ, right? If God can justify me and say, you are now, as far as I'm concerned, seated with my son, right? And I see, when I look at you, I see my son, and I see perfection and holiness. And as far as I'm concerned, that's who you are in Christ. If God can do that, why can't he just make me sinless now and perfect now? Right? If God can say, you are justified, why can't that just be done now? Right? I would sure like that. That would be nice. Well, the good news in the gospel is that actually does happen. And no, I'm not about to preach Wesleyan holiness, so keep listening. You're not going to keep wrestling with sin forever. You will not have to. You're not going to keep sinning forever. If you're in Christ, when this physical body dies and the life, your earthly life ends, you will be with Jesus Christ. Paul talks about that in First Thess 4 and 5. And when that happens, you will be perfect and you will be done sinning and it will be over forever. And you will be in reality as God sees you now in Christ. That's going to happen. We call that glorification. And once we understand that biblical truth, that that is our sure and certain future, then sooner or later we want to ask the question, okay, so I don't want to live life backwards, right? I won't be Benjamin Button, and I'll keep going forwards. But how about if I live on fast forward, right? How about that one? Is that an option? If I can just start going, right? And I don't actually have to walk the long road. So, so maybe not instantly, but maybe really quick, we can just get to the glorification part. Or maybe even just with this particular sin I'm struggling with right now. Maybe we can just get over that really fast. Like, how about tomorrow? And we'll just kind of move on with life. Right? How about if I live fast forward? Why does sanctification have to take the whole rest of my life? Why does discipleship keep going from the moment I'm saved to the moment I die? Because sometimes this gets and feels wearisome. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, right? Remember trying to pedal your life like Fred Flintstone drives his car with his feet? instead of using the Lamborghini engine of the Holy Spirit that God's given you to power the work of sanctification? I mean, Paul's praying, right? May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And so sometimes I think we want to say, well, today would be fine for you to finish that. Thank you. And other people have asked that question too, right? If you've asked that, I asked that. We're not the only people who ask that. And sometimes it's helpful to listen to other saints who've also asked these questions in ages past. We're hardly, we're hardly the first generation of Christians, right? Lots of people have wrestled with the same things we wrestle with. So let's ask an older saint, someone from the old school Princeton theology. School before it went left. A guy named Benjamin Warfield. He wrestled with this question. Why is the road of sanctification so long? And here's how Warfield answered that question. I found it very helpful. Sanctification, he says, for us as God's children is a way to know God's grace in a way that we could not if we were just saved and justified and instantly glorified just like that and there was nothing in between. On the long road of sanctification, as we live life going forwards and never backwards, the longer we walk with him, the more we learn how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Remember Ephesians we were in a couple of years ago? That the love of God is wide enough to span all of eternity. He chose his people in Christ before he made the world. And he will, they will be with him forever. And the love of Christ is high enough that it draws praise from the angels in heaven at the mystery of the majesty that God would become flesh and die to save his creation. And it's so wide that the love of God scoops up and draws to himself, chooses and elects people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language to be his own. And it's deep enough that Jesus Christ would go to the depths of hell to save you so you don't have to go there. And the way we learn how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ is by the long road of sanctification. And we wouldn't be able to learn it any other way. That's what Warfield thinks. So we get to learn that God's grace is not just to save us. And then God just leaves us alone to hopefully make our way to the end somehow or another. God's grace is with us every single step to the right we take as we grow in Christ. And if you're not taking those steps... You're not learning who your heavenly Father is the way he wants you to know him. Working to weaken our sinful habits, confessing and repenting and finding forgiveness and strength and destroying sin and building gospel habits through the ordinary means of grace, words, prayer, sacrament. We come again and again and again to the gospel of God in Christ for us. We find mercy and grace at the foot of the throne. So the long road of sanctification the life of discipleship, Warfield says, and I agree with him, is a way that we learn the mercy and the grace of God in a way that we could not learn any other way. I've been a Christian since I was 12. And as I keep looking back, sometimes I stop and look back on this ever-lengthening amount of time between when I was saved and whenever my earthly life is going to end. I know more and I understand more of God's fierce chesed love for me in Christ because I've been on this road of sanctification than I knew five years ago and ten years ago and twenty years ago. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. I would not trade that for anything because the thing I want most 
And I hope the thing you want most is to know my God so that I might glorify him and enjoy him forever. And that's what sanctification helps me do. So look at verse 23. You might notice that there are two verbs and two modifying phrases and one subject. The two verbs are sanctify at the beginning and keep towards the end. May your whole spirit body be kept right there. And the modifying phrases are completely goes with sanctify and whole soul, whole spirit, soul, body be kept blameless goes with kept. And the one subject for all of it is the God of peace. The God of peace. So let's let Paul's grammar help us walk through this passage. And let's start with the subject. Salvation is about God. It's for us. But it's about him. And he could describe God in a number of ways, but he uses the word peace. Which makes me answer, well, ask, what, why, are you, why do you call him the God of peace? Why that here? And I think that's because he's drawing on and concluding major themes in theology of the book. Because peace in the church and our relationships requires the imitating life of discipleship. And without that, lives that imitate Jesus and imitate other Christians, the church is going to look just like the world looks. And the world is not a place of peace, if you've looked around lately. Peace demonstrates in real life the power of the gospel in our relationships with each other. And peace is the only thing, the only way peace comes between God and man is through the power of the gospel as well, which is what undergirds the life of discipleship in this book. So only the gospel of grace brings peace between sinners like you and me. Only the gospel of grace brings sinners like us great peace with God. And that all of that results from the discipleship that Paul is teaching in this book. So it's both and. So he's praying for the God of peace. Because that's what results when the gospel's at work in the people of God. Glorifying God and enjoying him forever. So the first verb that he prays to the God of peace is sanctify you completely. Sanctify, that's a word we've been using. It's kind of an inclusio on this part of the book where he uses it in chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1, and uses it again here. It's the word that means weakening sinful habits. And building godly ones, and words, and speech, and thoughts, and emotions, like he's talked about in chapter 5. And Paul prays that God would do this, and I like the word he uses, completely. Completely. And that should be an encouraging word. It's a common word in English, but in Greek, it occurs nowhere else in the Bible. This is a unique word in Scripture. One way Paul highlights something, he wants you to have to stop and notice. And it's pulling together two other Greek words. To, Paul, Paul likes to do this sometimes, as he takes other Greek words, combines them, and makes a new one that works for what he wants to say. And this word is combining roots for one that means everything or entirety, and one that means goal or end. So this is basically everything makes the goal. So that brings us together to the idea of completely. Everything has completely met all expectations. Everything, has, everything involved in this has arrived at its goal. And he wants us to understand that God's work of sanctification that he's praying for is aimed at us being perfect, meaning every expectation that God has for us in Christ, bringing each individual Christian and the entirety of Christ's church to be the people we've been made to be perfectly reflecting Jesus in word and thought and in deed, living life forward and becoming more mature and ready for Jesus to come and for us to be with him forever. And that I find to be an exciting prospect, especially when we're asking questions like, why can't this just be over? 
And why can't I just stop wrestling with the sin, right? Why can't I be done with lust? Why can't I stop gossiping? Why do I always want to buy something else and have something new? Why do I keep wrestling with these sins that are inherent and endemic in the culture? That's what Paul is praying for, that God would keep working on you all the way until you're perfect. That's what God is doing in his church. He's bringing peace to the church by the preaching of the word so you can hear the Bible. He's bringing peace through prayer so that you will have power in the spirit to live a holy life. And he's bringing peace to the church by participation in the sacraments, which allow you to rely on God's grace to do the work that you're called to do in growing and living life forward. So wherever you find yourself this morning, whether you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, know that God isn't done with you yet. And the wrestling you're in now, he's not finished. And it will be over someday when you're with him. That's a very encouraging prospect. And know that if you're not a believer in Christ this morning, that God offers you the free gift of salvation through his son. And will start to do this work in you when you come to Christ to be saved by grace through faith. So now look at the second verb. Look at its phrase. We'll rearrange that a little bit and we'll read it so the subject and verb go together. He's saying, May the God of peace keep your whole spirit and soul and body blameless. And the second verb, keep, and its phrase, that gives us the domain of sanctification, right? This is the domain of sanctification. It's where sanctification goes on. If you want to ask, so which part of me is God making holy and blameless, right? Which part of me is God working on? Well, which part of you isn't he? Might be another way to put that, right? I think that a human being is a trichotomy. Some people think a dichotomy. I think a human is made up of three parts. A spirit, that's the part of us that connects to God and relates to him. That's dead in sin when we're born. A body, that's the part of us that connects to God's good creation in the world and allows us, we're physical corporeal beings and we interact with God's creation. And then we're also, we're we're a spirit, we're a body, and then we have a soul which connects together the spirit and the body with things like our intellect and our mind and our emotions and our personalities. So I think we're a trichotomy, a spirit, a soul, and a body as a single being. And which part of that is God working on in sanctification then? does this text say? Just one of them? Just my spirit. Just my body. No, he's working on the whole person. Our confession, or our catechism said that. You remember when we answer, what is sanctification? It's for the whole man, it says. All of us. Not just part of us. Not just inside, not just outside. I find that to be kind of an exciting prospect as well. That God's saving me and God's sanctifying me and God making me like Christ involves all of me. And the spiritual part of me is no longer dead in sin but alive in Christ and rightly connected and related to God through his spirit. And the soul part of me and the sinful habits that are embedded in my will and my thoughts and my emotions are becoming weaker and being destroyed all the time. And being made more like Christ in the body that I live in and where my actions are becoming more and more and my words are becoming more and more conduct that is worthy of the gospel. There's no part of you that God is leaving alone. And that is wonderful. That is marvelous. That is amazing grace. This is a fantastic prayer. God is going to sanctify you completely and he's going to keep you spirit, soul, and body until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should get a yahoo as you're reading this book, or an amen. Amen's work too. But I'm more on the Yahoo mood today. That's a Yahoo. 
And I think the order is important too. Spirit, soul, body. Sometimes we've talked about this in Christian formation. Sometimes we try to do sanctification as an outside-in work. That somehow if I just follow a code, right, or if I have a set of spiritual disciplines, and all these things are good in and of themselves, or if I just act and behave a certain way, somehow that's going to change who I am inside. And that's confusing justification and sanctification. Justification is an outside-in work. It's Christ's work on my behalf applied into me to make me alive. Justification comes from outside of myself and comes in and renews and makes me a new man in Christ, new creation. Sanctification works the other way. It's inside out. My identity in Christ becoming more and more transforming my spirit, then my soul, and then my body to be, live a life that's like Christ. So sanctification goes inside out, and Paul writes it in that order in his text. Two more things to learn about sanctification from his prayer. The end of verse 23, I think, reminds us of the time frame, which is helpful, right? When we're asking, why can't I be done with this now? What's the time frame? Look at the end of the verse. It's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a little while from now, or it could be in two seconds. You really don't know, but you know that you're going to hear the command from heaven. You're going to hear the voice of the archangel. You're going to hear the sound of God's trumpet. And when that happens, the dead in Christ will rise, and the rest of us who are left behind will go with them in the air and welcome Christ back to a new heavens and a new earth. That is going to happen. But keep in mind, that means the road of sanctification could be, if Jesus tarries, the rest of your life. It's a race, Hebrews 12. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And the last thing we learn from his prayer in verse 24 is this. In all of your striving, if you look at it again, and working and praying and hearing and living of Scripture and receiving the sacraments, you can rely on this truth in his word. The one who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. When you finally reach the end of your life, and you will, when your present body dies, and each one of you will face the vocation of death, you get to go to be with Jesus and wait for a new body where your soul and spirit will reside in eternal life and your sanctification will be over and you will not always wrestle with sin and you will not always be in the presence of temptation and you will not always be able to say what Paul wrote in Romans 7, right? Where he wrote, Oh, what a wretched man I am. The things I want to do, I don't do those. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Well, you will not always be wretched, We will know each other as perfect people in Christ. Try to imagine that. I will get to know each of you, if you are in Christ, in a new heavens and a new earth as a perfect person. How fun will that be? How glorifying to God and enjoying Him forever will that be? And you'll get to know me as a perfect man in Christ without all of the sin and the yuck that we get to experience in genuine, honest life together. That's really something to look forward to. Honestly, I can't wait to meet the perfect Christ like you. This is going to be amazing. You're going to be beautiful. You're going to be beautiful. And I love to remember why it is that God does this. Why we need to be perfected by inside-out sanctification. It's because of what happens when Jesus comes. So let me take a slight tangent. When Jesus comes, there's going to be this marriage that happens, right? One of the metaphors for our relationship with Jesus is he's the bride. 
or he's the groom, we're the bride. He's the groom, right? He's the shepherd and the leader and the caregiver and the initiator, the protector. We're the bride, we're the responder, we're the sheep, we're the helpers, we're the followers. And when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a marriage to be fully consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. And there's going to be this marriage banquet that goes on that is the table that we partake of is a prequel of. That's eternal life, being fully possessed by your God and being the person he's created you to be. That's amazing. That's what you're headed for when God says, I, you will be my people and I will be your God. Well, here's how sanctification comes into that. I hope you find this encouraging. This is part of encourage one another with these words that First Thess 4 and 5 teach us. I was reading just at the end of last year a book by a second generation reformer named Zonki. Am I saying his name right? It was written in Latin. Our very own Patrick O'Banion translated that book into English so that someone like me can actually access what he wrote. And Bazanki writes about the spiritual marriage between Jesus and his church. And one of the points he makes I find particularly helpful is this, is that marriage can only happen between two like kinds, male and female of the same species, right? You can't marry a dog. You can't marry a donkey. If marriage has to happen between two like kinds, we have a problem because Jesus is perfectly holy. And we are not. And so how can that happen? So the process of sanctification has the goal of completely, and it has the domain of everything, and it has the addendum, and God will be faithful to make sure that this happens because God has determined that his son will have a bride, and that's us. And so when we arrive at that day, finally, God will have finished his work of sanctification so that we are holy as he is holy. And we'll be ready to spend eternity with the Son. That's what you're headed for. So if it feels like a long road, and it feels like maybe the scenery on the side of the road isn't changing very much, right? I feel like this is the same scenery I saw last year. I'm not sure I've moved. Understand this. God is working in eternity, and he's making you ready to be the bride of his Son. And he's got forever to work with. And he's going to spend the rest of his life working on you. And he's going to make sure that that work is finished when you meet his son. Discipleship, my friends, is the long game. It's the long game. It's the lifetime game. And it's done as all of you works hard as all of God's spirit does the will, gives you the will and the strength to do it. That's the conclusion of Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians. Now, as typical in his letters, there's a couple of closing comments at the end. We've intentionally spent our time on the prayer. We're not going to spend much time at all on the closing comments. I want you to notice three things about them. If you look at verses 25 through 28, what's the first thing he asks them to do? Pray. What's the last thing he asks them to do? Read this word of God to everyone, prayer, and the word of God, and what's in the middle? Greet each other with a holy kiss. We'll be doing that as our application for this, by the way, in the commission at the end of the story. Yeah, now you're awake. There we go. No, we won't, I won't make you do that. But what's in the middle? Word, prayer starts, word at the end, and in the middle, close, honest, personal relationship that's required for the work of sanctification. Because sanctification works this way. Remember the three phrases we learned? It happens when you are in Christ. It happens with him. And it happens because I need you. In Christ, 
with him needs you. That's how he closes out the book. The ordinary means of grace and the relationship necessary to do discipleship. And here's his last word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And I give you that also as the last word of the book of 1 Thessalonians. So here's your commission. Pray this prayer for the rest of the church this week, especially verses 23 and 24. Pray this prayer for each other. Don't pray it for yourself. We've got you covered. We're praying for you. You pray for everyone else with an outward focus that they and the Spirit of God would be working to sanctify them. And the better you know each other, the more accurately you'll be able to pray. Go back to the rest of the book. Pray your way through all five chapters if you would like. There's tons and tons of material there about the life of discipleship. Pray that for each other personally by name this next week. That's your commission from this book. So that God would be faithful, he would answer the prayer, that he would be faithful to finish the good work he started in us too. Okay? So that's the end of 1 Thessalonians. Next week we will have one more sermon from this book. As we had kind of an introduction sermon, we're going to have a conclusion sermon next week. Let's pray. Father, we pray again that you would fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that you would use this text, Holy Spirit, so that we would be able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because you're the one who gives us the will and the strength to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.